0: Hey gang, Culture Determined is back. Now, as an independent operation, I'm doing everything myself. That means that I need your help to get other people to check out the podcast. The way to do that is to smash that subscribe button, leave a five-star review, tweet about it, Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, tell your friends, tell your enemies, you know, strangers on the street, tell them about Culture Determined. I hope to get a more regular pace going, aiming for roughly once a week. So it's great to be back. I hope you enjoy this episode with Jason Zinneman. Hi, welcome to Culturally Determined. I'm your host, Arya Cohen-Wade, and my guest today is Jason Zinneman. Jason, could you please introduce
1: yourself? I'm Jason Zinneman. I'm the comedy columnist for the New York Times, and I'm, I'm thrilled to be here.
0: Well, thanks for coming back on. Um, you were last on a couple of years ago when you wrote a very good biography of David Letterman. And you were then an are now the comedy columnist for the New York Times. And in that capacity, you wrote a recent essay. The title is, Is It Funny for the Jews? Uh, it's a great title. And the link, I believe, will be included you know, in the podcast description. But you can also Google, Is It Funny for the Jews? Or a look in the New York Times, and it ran February 17th. And I found the piece really interesting. And asked you to come on to talk about it so thank you for coming back on you explore a topic that interests me in general and mentioned some stuff that i've been thinking about as well in particular this book people love dead jews by dara horn that came out last year and i had her on the show four or five months ago and that book has continued to sort of stay in my mind as various events involving jews um have popped up in the media as they tend to do I would commend this piece to everyone and it, something i liked about it was that you wrote about your ambivalence about this topic and didn't try to force some grand conclusion but sort of thought about your
1: ambivalence in productive ways so why did you want to write this piece well this is a piece i sort of struggled to avoid probably for a long time um it's something i've been thinking about um for a long time i mean probably you know for years uh, but I, I would say over the past year i I've had conversations with so many, you know, important people in my life about a lot of these issues. And uh, part of it might just be the kind of classic getting older, like are my, my parents getting the classic story of the getting more Jewish as you get older, uh, <laughs> and to, you know, as opposed to going to Shoal, I had to, like, grapple with these intellectual ideas. Uh, that's my version of of going to Shoal, I guess. Uh, uh, so I've been thinking about it for a long time, There were, but there was also a series of discrete events that uh, spurred it on, but it was actually, to be honest with you, always a piece that I couldn't figure out how to write. I sort of didn't know how even to write it in the times. I knew that, and it began with, you know, one of the people who I talked to about these issues was my editor. I have a great editor who I've been working with the entire time, um, and we were at, Katz's deli uh, and I was I was going it wasn't for like a pitch meeting or anything. I was just going on about Jewish issues and then like maybe on a month later, she said, oh you know the, the casting element of it, which is you know this sort of there's been like a series of of incidents about controversies about casting whether to cast Jews and or non-jews in, in Gentile roles or um, or other other racial issues involving casting. It's probably an increasingly politicized issue, and and she said, "Oh, do you, you know, do you you want to write a piece about that casting thing?" And I, I said, "Like I, I knew right away, no, I didn't want to do that. I, you know, I I knew I, I I actually would love to read like a hot take on casting from somebody who's very angry about it, but I knew that the the challenge of this piece was formal as much as substantive, which is that I wanted it to be to dramatize the ambivalence of a specific kind of Jewish person, which, is, which there, turns out there's a ton of them, um, <laughs> uh, who has been thinking through these ideas. And to write a 2,500 word piece that doesn't have a strong point of view is challenging. I do think there is a, there's an arc in this piece. I do change in my opinion, but it's not a dramatic arc. And mm-hmm. there is, um, you know, I'm sort of arguing with myself in it, um, I think one of my of the incredible amount of response I got, you know, one of the more gratifying, somebody called it Talmudic, um, which I <laughs> which I enjoyed. Uh, but I thought that 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 you know, I don't see it the same way Dara Horn does. Although reading her book was also really eye opening, um, and was was a key moment inspiring me to to rethink some of the things I I thought. But I think she she you know, part of her power in her book is she's less ambivalent. And also part of the power is that, like, I'm coming at... At the end of the day, I realize that I'm in the perfect position to write the piece because I'm the comedy... A a lot of really fascinating issues, political and otherwise, can be discussed through the prism of comedy better than anywhere else. And I'm coming at it from the point of view of, of like, a, a kind of culture vulture who is, you know... My work is, of course political in the way that anybody's work is political um mm-hmm. I'm interested in political issues but my my kind of primary bias is towards great art so so the casting thing particularly it's like I come at it from the point of view that like I think anyone can play anyone uh to a point to a point but then when you actually have to drill down on the, on the question do do you actually believe that does it actually matter with when uh, a Gentile plays a Jew or when and then you have to ask yourself top questions, you realize, well, no, not always. Uh, I mean, I mean, sometimes it does matter. Um, and I, I actually think, and I'll just, you know, again, there, I think that most people, whether it comes to this, or it comes to appropriation, or it becomes to um, anti- how you think about respond to anti-Semitism and works of art, most people aren't on one side of this cultural or angry divide. And most... Uh, of the media writing on this doesn't reflect that. And I think part of that is that it's just not as fun to read, honestly. uh, (laughs) um, But uh, you don't want to be, and I worried this piece would be wishy-washy and it would come off as, but the truth is, is that like the world is complex and and criticism should reflect that. So, you know, to sum up, I guess, the story had been percolating for a while. Once I um, was offered this piece to do by casting, I said, no, but there's this broader piece about which casting is a part of it, but also is about you know Jewish comedy, the legacy of Jewish comedy, and how I've been thinking increasingly about anti-Semitism and the seriousness with which Jews take anti-Semitism, particularly Jews who are you know like I say, culture vulture Jews like myself, and the stories we we do and don't tell about that. Anyways, I'll shut up now and let you respond. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well that there's
0: a lot there to respond to i mean the um i am also pretty ambivalent about the stuff in terms of casting and i guess sarah silverman maybe was the one who sort of sparked this current iteration of the conversation where she on her she was a show or a podcast or something but she was talking about how very often jewish characters in tv and movies are not played by jewish actors and in particular uh women jewish women characters are not played by jewish actresses and um marvelous mrs basil is maybe one of the more prominent ones um but there's many other examples and then it seems like jewish men uh were able to enter playing themselves uh earlier than than jewish women were and so there's a you know sort of a i don't know and there's an angle there that that is interesting but I, i i i am hesitant to be the type of person who's saying only you know only person of group x can play character from group x and i don't think you mentioned this in the piece but there's a staging of version of venice going on in brooklyn right now in which shylock is played by a black american actor uh who's not jewish but the character is is jewish within the show but and other and is i guess portrayed as a you Know black Jew in this world, so it's sort of a colorblind casting kind of thing. But, but once again, it's sort of like, well, the, the role is not going to a Jewish actor, and maybe Al Pacino is the most famous Shylock, um, or maybe the most prominent. I don't know if it was any good or not, but um, of the past couple was, of decades, and of course, it he- was
1: great. It was the best Al Pacino, the best, my favorite Shylock of the past that, I, that I've seen. And, right. and, uh, and he is,
0: I mean, Sherlock I mean, is an Italian Jew, so Al is Italian, but anyway, there's this side argument in, um, in Dara Horn's book. One of her essays is the anti-Semitic aspect of Merchant of is like, too easily glossed over by critics, both Jewish and Gentile, who want to ignore the ugliness and, and don't want to say that Shakespeare, the great, you know, humanist writer, might have just been an anti-Semitic himself. Um So there's there's a lot there, but you you start the piece with with an anecdote that is a little unusual, I thought, and it's related to Caroline or Change. So can you just recount that anecdote and say why you started yeah, that? Yeah, that, that that
1: was a major clarifying moment that I knew I had to write the piece, which was so Caroline or Change is one of the greatest musicals of the last 25 years, maybe maybe the greatest. Tony Kushner wrote it, and it's kind of loosely based on his childhood. It's set in 1963, and it's about a relationship between a eight year old Jewish boy and his African-American nanny and in the, in, in their family and the climactic scene at the end. And these are two people that have a very complex relationship um, that I think is ultimately, you know, warm and loving. He certainly the kid certainly has a lot of uh, respect for her, um, but he has this moment of, uh, you know, there's a whole elaborate plot about it, but he has this moment where he says this ugly thing to her. He gets, he gets angry. He loses his temper. He's a real kid. And he says this uh, racist thing to her And then she responds with an anti-Semitic thing to him. She says, I'm paraphrasing, but I'll I'll do is go to hell. We'll go to hell. And this is, and then they both um, kind of regret it. But interestingly, it's funny, interesting, in in the current climate, they don't tell anybody, um, which I think is key. Here's the opposite of calling out. Uh, no No one's wrote about this, but it's sort of a brief for not calling out. Like, she doesn't tell his parents what happened. She is sings this great song about her regret of what she said. And, you know, also is not like, uh, doesn't go back and, you know, apologize. It's anyways, the point is, what was striking to me is I saw this show 20 years ago and then I see the revival with my daughter. Um, And when the the boy said the racist thing, the audience was dead silent. And when she said the anti-Semitic thing, uh, there was really loud laugh, like, chuckles, laughter. And I was completely baffled. My first reaction is like, this is not what the production wants, clearly. That's not what the, I was like, felt for the actors. That's not the, I knew what was coming next. This was not what you wanted. Mm -hmm. And I thought to myself, well, what's going on here? Why is that reaction? Where is that reaction coming from? And I, you know, I, I can't say conclusively, but I, you know, first of all, I asked a lot of people. This was not y- unusual. This has happened before. Um, I even talked to um, Mark Harris, who's Tony Kushner's husband, and uh, you know, to see like if this was this was something that happened. It didn't only happen this this way. Sometimes there was silence. Both there was there was chuckles. And then the woman who played Caroline that uh, gave an interview for NPR, where she she said she was disturbed by this. And by the way, I do think the reception of that was different by critics now than was back 20 years ago, which is also notable. Um, Like there was one review I read where somebody said essentially that kid deserved it, Mm -hmm. which also really uh, disturbed me. This is a eight year old boy, less than, you know, two decades after the Holocaust almost certainly has relatives who died in the Holocaust. You know, that, that, how, how, you know, how, how do we take that? What is that? So, um, you know, that was sort of the kicking off point of my piece and, and, and that led into maybe think about something also just how easily Jewish comedians and myself and Jews in my life sort of laugh off anti-Semitism, <laughs> joke, joke about it. You know, it also, when, when the Chappelle special came out, highly controversial for all kinds of reasons I heard, you know, obviously most famously on trans issues, um, there were a lot, a lot of uh, criticism of, the sex, of sexism in the special. There is a whole joke about space Jews. Not only did nobody, I mean, very few people complain about that joke, but as soon as it came out, I remember seeing Brian Koppelman on Twitter, who's the showrunner of Billions. His first, who's a Jewish showrunner, I assume. His first reaction was um, can, can I option space? Hey, Dave Chappelle, can I option space Jews? And again, I'm not, again, I'm not calling out Brian Koppelman. I'm not saying I was wrong. I, I was saying I recognize that response. That is a very, that is the response of a culture of culture Jew that I'm talking about, which is to joke and laugh about it. Um, there is another tradition, which is the kind of anti-defamation league tradition uh, of being very alert to anti-Semitism and on guard against it, which, you know, has always been around and also is one that I, you know, when I did some self-examination, I like, I've always had kind of a certain contempt for that. And to the extent that the piece is has a kind of arc, it is that I, I, I learned to have, I don't have that anymore. There's a, you know, th- that's necessary in a way, but because the question I'm trying to ask myself is that, Ari, we have this glorious legacy of Jewish comedy, both culturally, but also personally. You know, it's how I can bond with so many other Jewish people of different of different kinds is through our sense of, you know, laughing at dark things, making fun, you know, Jewish people it's interesting our our idea about stereotypes and their danger I think is is different so i, I started to ask well you know, what's the what's the dark side of what's the downside of this of not trying to be too serious and and that was you know that 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 was a key starting off point for this piece mm-hmm.
0: yeah okay so there's some people who are laughing at this line that is not intended to be comic as i understand you about the Jews, all the Jews are going to go to hell. And then they were not laughing at the like preceding line that the Jewish boy says to the African-American servant, which is something like, I hope all the black people get blown up by church bombs or, or something along those lines. And you, so you think when this was staged, because this is a revival, this was staged 20 years ago, no one would have laughed at the second one. I mean, the, the, the you know, the thing that has changed obviously in the past, you know, dating to about, the middle of 2015 is, you know, anti-Semitism either is risen or its uh, salience has become more noticeable as various politicians played to or toyed around with anti-Semitism and, and encouraged uh, or at least casually approved anti-Semitism in some of their followers. And, you know, this is mainly appeared on the right, but, but also on the left, I would say, especially over the things related to uh, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. So, you know, a joke about, like, all the Jews are going to hell. Or not, it's, I guess it was It's Bob, not, it's a, not joke. a
1: joke. It's not a joke. A, a lie that's meant
0: to be, you know, cutting nope. and emotionally salient. So, 20 years ago, I don't know. So now we're all sort of more, at least we being the Jews, are sort of more, um, Jews in America, are more cognizant of the fact that not only are sort of, like, the anti-Semites still out there, like, some of them are, you know, proud to... <laughs> Proud to call themselves as such, etc. And I think I mean, there's definitely been a rise in conspiratorial thinking, or at least how easy it is for conspiratorial thinking to rise to action over the pandemic and before. And a lot of you know conspiratorial thinking always sort of ends up roping in the Jews in some way, as like right. you know who who ultimately benefits from planting chips in people or whatever the fuck. So that you know so. I think that's another weird aspect of this. It's like yeah, anti-semitism warming its way in um, through, you know, QAnon and anti-vax stuff and other weird conspiracy theories. And there are sort of like left-wing versions of this as well. Um, but, okay. So would you attribute it to, I mean, so my, <laughs> if I want to be forgiving people, say, well, it's like nervous laughter. Um, yeah. And, you know, someone said something rude and it's not acceptable, but I guess, Well, what do you, I mean, do you think that there's a case for that or?
1: Yeah. Yeah. I I think, I think part of it is nervous laughter. Um, But I I guess to contextualize it, the purpose of this moment is to, is to be an intense, ugly moment that the audience should shut up at both of them. Like it should make you take you aback. This is an, a masterful, mutely structured musical that that's the purpose, right? So the, The purpose of the the audience reacted the way that the artists want them to react with the race. And I think a progressive Broadway audience, when they hear racism on stage, is alert and under and sensitive to the severity of it. So the question is, why were those chuckles during the... Now, look, there's no question that people react nervously uh, and, and they laugh sometimes. And it's sort of a fool's game to... Guess what's inside their head? There is the option that they were bigots in that audience laughing. I don't think that's what it is. Like they don't—they are paying hundred dollars to go see a Broadway show, which is you know, Broadway shows are. I mean, some are. I don't know. Some are. But my my sense, and this is again, it, it's just like a guess, is that it, it's not that they were cracking up at anti-Semitism. It's that they didn't have the same sensitivity to the soberness of what was going on that they did when with the racist comment. Um, and why is that? And I don't think it, I don't think it was any kind of, I don't want to go any deeper than that because it's, it's guessing at intentions and of people we don't know the, the, you know, the, it was a lead for a reason. It wasn't to indict that audience. Yeah. Um, it was, but it was a way to open up to a broader question about, you know, if I'm asking tougher questions myself, I've laughed at anti sem you know, jokes about Jews very easily. You know, there's no there's no group that I'm, uh, obviously, because I'm Jewish. And I mean, you know, you have these examples of, you know, Mel Brooks and producers and Borat um, and every single Jewish comedian, you know, it's one of the glories of being Jewish that you can laugh at these anti-Semitic <laughs> jokes, right? And that are sort of transgressive, right? But, but, I mean, the, you know, if you look at Merchant of Venice, right? Merchant of Venice is a comedy. Right. That's a comedy. I mean, again, I don't look at it the same way Darren Horne does, but it, I often, well, I used to joke that Merchant of Venice was the original version of a comedian who made an offensive joke and said, "Just kidding." I mean, Shakespeare basically like made this clownishly anti-Semitic portrait of a of a Jewish person for a Gentile audience exclusively one in which the, the Jewish stereotype gets his comeuppance at the end, it's almost impossible to imagine the audience not cheering and laughing at the humiliation of the Jewish person at the end. Right. What's what's offensive about Merchant of Venice is not that there's some slurs in it. What's offensive is that the whole construct of the play is built around this like, anti-Semitic revenge fantasy. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's also... Uh, you know that there's all sorts of problematic aspects in Shakespeare's plays because he wrote it 40 years ago, right? <laughs> right. They're, they're also incredible. They're the greatest plays we have, right? I don't want to throw cancel Merchant of Venice. I don't want to toss it aside. And I don't think a sophisticated understanding of it is that it's actually not only is it not only anti-Semitic, but it's not the, it's not more it's less anti-Semitic than a lot of other works from the time. I mean, I don't agree that Shakespeare, as with the idea that I grew up with, which, that, which is that Shakespeare transcended the anti-Semitism of time because, and the evidence being with, with Merchant, the hath not a Jew speech. Mm-hmm. Because if you look closely at that speech, it's a speech that all that hath not a Jew thing is not some airy-fairy plea for multiculturalism and sensitivity. It's a, it's a bit of rhetoric to set up shylock saying i'm gonna get my pound of flesh and take revenge yeah the final lie is like
0: if if we're not wrong do we not want revenge or or something to that effect
1: yeah i mean i'll just briefly recapitulate
0: because i talked with their Horde for 25 minutes on this topic the previous episode you know there is this argument that's sort of the harold bloom argument that shakespeare took a stock comedic villain character of the avaricious jew but his powers of you know dramatic invention were such that he ended up like creating a fully realized human character that we're still interested in 400 years later out of this stock character that would have been like possibly played by like someone in a mask with like a, a giant nose and like a Punch and Judy show kind of thing. So that is Harold Bloom um, and I subscribe to that in some ways and not in others. But I mean, you know, the fact that that Merch of Venice is getting a, not a Broadway staging but an off-Broadway staging in, in Brooklyn as a major culture event but the director and everyone has decided to to you know inject uh, uh american understanding of race well, and the black white divide you think, into it is sort of you seen interesting i haven't seen it i'm, okay, I'm interested so in checking I, it out
1: i'm also uncomfortable with it like i heard from people who worked on that show after this piece i have they want me to come to see that show uh, yeah, I mean, I yeah, I won't I say. I haven't it. seen it, and you haven't seen it, and it got a lot of criticism because of the the press release for it, which again is is not fair to the show. I'm not, I don't know, like I I haven't seen it, but I think we need to also be careful that like I think Shakespeare did transcend the the stock stereotype. He just didn't. I mean, to a, to a point, to a point, right? So it's uh, and it's not only about you know it's about many things. So um, I'd rather not indict this thing without seeing it.
0: Right, right, uh, for sure, but yeah, it, but you know, I think what Dara Horn might say is something like, well, you have this you have this famous play that involves anti-Semitism, and it's being you know being staged in New York and we're going through a period in which anti-Semitism is suddenly prevalent once again in American life in an unexpected way, and yet the, they've made this conversation more about race than about anti-semitism. so it's like Jews are a race once again. that's that's what what she might say and since I haven't seen the show um, I I can't embrace that, but you can sort of see that fitting within the like Jews don't count thing. And so that's, that's another book that I haven't read, but is often getting paired with the Dara Horde book. And you mentioned this book, but it's, it's
1: by a British Jewish comedian, right? Yep. And well, can you talk a little bit about that and what you took from that? You know, it's, it's a more polemical book and it, it digs into the kind of double standards on issues on casting and appropriation Um, no one's ever been upset about a, you know, someone serving a bagel (laughs) who's not Jewish. No one's ever, no, no, about the, or the assimilation of, you know, the, no one's ever been upset. And then, you know, the, I guess he, he goes into how these very Jewish works of art, like, uh, falsettles, which, uh, are cast with all these Gentiles without any criticism. When, uh, Scarlett Johansson gets cast, that's a big controversy or with, uh, in the Heights with, uh, various kinds of, you know, there, mm-hmm. that's a controversy. So, so you know, that, and it's also about, and both of those books are also about the kind of pervasiveness of anti-Semitism that we don't talk about. You know, he makes a really good point that in the current climate, where a lot of arguments about um, what's acceptable, what's a microaggression, what's sexist, racist, et cetera, have to do with power, Power differentials. Mm-hmm. The the stereo. The problem with the the Jews have is that the bigot imagines them to be both high status, running the banks, you know, running Hollywood, et cetera, and low status um, rats, you know, vermin, et cetera. So that sort of, in his mind, kind of confuses people and makes them. Um, it, it makes them think of the well, anti-Semitism isn't as, isn't as bad a thing, um, and it is true that the way anti-Semitism operates in Hollywood is very different and has been very different than racism. Um, And, you know, in part, and Jews have a long history of running studios, um, being in positions of power at networks. But at at the same time, that's not the same thing as saying there hasn't been this long uh, shadow of anti-Semitism. some of it internalized, a lot of it internalized by other Jews uh, in power That, that has hurt and impeded Jewish careers. So that, that, that's his, you know, he's, he, he makes a lot of interesting points. Um, it's a narrower book than Daryl um mm-hmm. book, I think, and a and little less reported, but they are of a, of a similar... It struck me reading both of them that there's something in the air here.
0: Yeah. And just, you know, here's a thought, and maybe this is too glib, but if, you know, let's say that a theater company decided in 2022 that they're going to put on Othello, but it, they're going to do a twist where you know, the Othello um, himself is going to be a white Jew and all the other characters going to be black Well, I like, set it in an African country or something. Like, there would probably be, like, a huge uproar about this and it probably wouldn't happen um, for probably good reasons. <laughs> and whereas, you know, a casting the, a black actor, and this is not, not new because he's played this role before, like, maybe he was more in, like, a Summerstock kind of thing, but um, the same actor played the role, like, 30 years ago. But, you know, it's... The, the conversation just is just... It's just different and then when you recall the conversation around In the Heights which was about like more about colorism which is you know a somewhat of a level down from like the level of like pure racism at which you know a lot of cultural conversation happens I know it felt it, like it, it does seem to reinforce this like the rules that you know polite society has agreed upon about how minorities should be treated like we'll make an exception if, it, <laughs> if the Jews are are in there, and yeah, the, the part about um, you know, the odd one of the odd aspects about anti semitism is that it's not like a and maybe this is what tripped up Louis Goldberg. Um, it's not like traditional race hatred in which you're just saying like these people are like subhumans or scum or something, it's also like, yeah, they're all powerful and they secretly control the banks of the world government and so forth. And this very you know, unfortunate, and frightening incident that happened a month or so ago where. A British Muslim man took hostages at a synagogue in Texas, and, and I guess the FBI at least additionally said something like this: "We're not treating this as an anti-Semitic incident." But he thought that taking Jews hostage would be like taking, like, you know, the, the Queen of England hostage or something, and would get him like if he want. And he placed a call to a rabbi at the Central Synagogue in New York, thinking that like because the Jews have so much power that he'll be able to get this person released from prison. He wants um sprung because you know the Jew like you know it's like kidnapping patty Hearst or something and right. so that is a that's obviously anti-semitic but it doesn't fit in when within the normal sort of like hierarchy system of racial oppression that most of American history is, is arranged right. around so it's like hard right. for us to understand it i think or, or for non-jews to understand it i don't know does that make sense right. to you?
1: no it makes a lot of you uh, completely completely i mean these i mean it's it's interesting. There, there, there's interesting parallels between um, these rise in anti-Jewish attacks and, and anti-Asian attacks and how I see they've impacted people I know. And, you know, it's hard not to see, like, the obviously, the 2018 uh, attack on the synagogue in, in Pittsburgh mm-hmm. being this massive turning point um, where you take things. But, but you know, there's, there's something else. I, I think one thing that I've really learned in the response of this piece, which has frankly surprised me a bit, how overwhelming the... The amount of people who've written me, the amount of Jews who've written me, um, to tell stories about anti-Semitism, have made me think there's something else different between these things, which is that I think there's a, um, well I don't know if it's different, but I, I do know that there's a lot of Jews who have been bottling up a lot of these stories, a lot yeah. of Jews who think that it's not that big a deal that there's worse problems in the world that they, that, you know, like me, I, I really, honestly, I say this in the piece, I do not think my life has been defined or impeded by anti-Semitism at all. It's kind of hard for me to admit that, but I, I, that's how I feel. That's how I've always felt. And if anything, it's, it's been helpful, but then once I actually sat down and thought about my life, I actually sat down and made a list of all the anti-Semitic incidents in my life. It's a long list. It's uh-huh. a really long list. Some of which I've told people and they're like shocked by or disturbed by, and I don't think are bad at all, at all, right? And I realized, you know, I'm, I'm also there's generational differences there. There's all sorts of reasons for this, but I, thought, I started to think, well, this is really interesting that I have this whole list, you know, obviously from being a little kid, not to mention like the reason I'm in here in this country at all, of course, since it has to do with, you know, relatives who aren't that far away fleeing, uh, the Holocaust. Mm -hmm. Um, but in my life, you know, from a little kid to, you know, high school story, you know, college to, you know, the horror of being Jewish online. Right. uh, (laughs) There's all these stories, none of which I consider I, until I really started thinking hard about this, particularly, you know, meaningful to phase me. And I started, well, why not? And am I complicit in something? And that's what I feel that has definitely hit you know what I've heard, in the feedback that I've heard, I've heard a lot of other people saying that, saying, "This happened to me, this happened to me, this happened to me." You know, and I, maybe they have told a lot of other people about it. I, I, my impression is no. My impression is that there is a lot of you know rationalization, denial, trying not to play, play the victim. There's a lot of this and I'm not sure that's, you know, some of that is, some of that is useful, but a lot of it isn't.
0: Yeah, yeah. it's vexing and, and difficult and maybe, you know, for the, the post-World War II, um, post-Holocaust Americans were probably thought, you know, well, this, you know, this isn't the Holocaust. Like, the, you know, the, the, the worst thing that could possibly happen in the 20th century happened and the Jews were the primary victims and like, so... If someone says a snare or something, well, you know, shaking off like, you know, this is America, blah, blah. Um, So that's one way of doing it. And that's certainly not, you know, perhaps not centering victimhood is a conscious or unconscious decision, but maybe has led to various, you know, cultural traits in American Jews that are helpful. I I don't know exactly. I mean, I'm thinking about it is in the habit of the very beginning of of Philip Roth's career where he wrote um, some short stories (laughs) that were gaining traction. And I think one in particular involved a jewish like it was, takes place at like training camp in the military and there's a shirker and, and he's jewish and he's trying to get out of like doing the compulsory tasks and duties and so forth and the the sergeant or whatever is also jewish and at first he sort of like lets him slide or something because they're like ah oh, we're both jews come on and then he realizes this guy is taking advantage of him and like wh- the equivalent of Abe foxman or whoever of that day like wrote you know wrote a letter to young philip roth saying like you're gonna bring a second holocaust Onto us, so like, you're doing Hitler's work. And this was, like, a radicalized moment in, in his career. And he fictionalized this in The Ghost Rider. And, yeah. And so I think the rebellion against that, being like, no, we don't need to sugarcoat it. Like, I wrote a story about a fictional Jew who was a bad person. You know, Jews are real people. They could be bad people, too. And if you depict them a Jew doing something bad, like shirking military duty, then, you know, you can't tell me how, Like, I can't do that. And so... That that sort of became the rainy attitude, I guess in in some way at least in comedy like you know you get to pick these things and laugh at them and Seinfeld and Larry David um you know are making fun of themselves and you know various Jewish foibles I I don't know it, but it, it's something like shifting now where that sort of the the rabbi whoever who wrote to Philip Roth in the 50s maybe would have get a little more of a hearing today than you would have 20 years ago
1: well, I think, look, my inclination is to, is, you know, I roll my eyes at Abe Foxman and I roll my eyes at that rabbi. And I think that, you know, um, but I think that voice is, you know, is important and is is worth thinking about. You know, I think it's more useful when you have these discussions also to take it out of the realm of like the extremes of like hate crimes and the Holocaust, et cetera. Cause a lot of it is particularly my story, which is about cultural issues. You know, one big issue that people talk about, you know, how how much should should we take is is representation, right? That we, and that's something we sort of everybody agrees on, that like diversity and representation, that's a good thing. Wow, why is it a good thing? Well, if we have the first, um, if we have the first female president, that would expand the horizons of, um, you know, for girls everywhere. For You know, my daughters can see that. That seems like a clear thing. We could even even if you don't you know only like hillary clinton or you don't like whoever they were and the same thing is, you know in in tv shows you know if you could see an indian comedian um in, in a way that you couldn't before that expands the horizons and you know one of the things that was really eye-opening in this piece is i always assumed that oh look the reason i'm not on the side of the abe fox or one of the reasons is that look Culturally, Jews are everywhere. We've had this great tr- in part because we've been allowed to roam and be dark and light, and we've been a al- lot. And so, of course, like, we, you know, we're, we, we, what are we complaining about? We, we've been, we, you know, <laughs> we been, but then I actually thought about it, my childhood. And I read, I, I also read this, uh, another book I mentioned, this Jeremy Dower book, which points out that in the, in the 80s, essentially, from 78 to you know, really 80, 87 with 30-something, but 89, really, and a statistic that blew my mind, and a lot of people who saw this, that there were no main characters on primetime television. This is back when primetime television really meant something. That that was culture right. for a kid. There was no internet. There was, you know, <laughs> I wasn't seeing R-rated movies, that, there was no streaming. Forget that. All all of culture was So that meant there were no Jews. Now, this is a time when there was there was black representation that you saw at the the highest levels, right? On the Cosby Show and different, I mean, you know, there wasn't every kind, but there was some, right? Mm -hmm. And then when there was some Jewish representation, there was, it was only this one kind, which was the Jewish male stand-up comic with, generally speaking, a Gentile love interest. Mm -hmm. There was no Jewish women all through the eighties and no Jewish couples. That's actually, in a lot of ways, really hit me hard. I was like, is that right? I never saw now granted, there was, um, you know, in maybe in, some, in movies there was there and there were certainly Jews representing Woody Allen and Albert Brooks, et cetera, but I wasn't seeing that as a kid. Now, if we're to accept the fact that it matters, it mattered that there was the only Indian character that an Indian ki- American Indian kid saw was Apu, shouldn't this matter? And is this idea that, that Jews have been everywhere? And then of course, you know, you say, uh, you go back farther, it's farther in time and you say that even the Jews who were there, I do think it's actually Jewish men and Jewish women are a completely different story. And even today, there's a lot of Jewish actresses. You people have no idea are Jewish, like Scarlett Johansson. Yeah, right? ever mentioned Scarlett Johansson. Yeah. Yeah, or Rachel Weisz. Um, that also was interesting to me. That was really that 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 shook me because I was like, oh, that's not how I. Rem-. That made me reevaluate my own life story. Along that, combined with this thing about like looking at these, what we now call micro and what we get, you know, like, all right, what? what? And I also thought, I, I thought this was one story. This was a story, an example of something where I didn't think was anti-Semitic at all, but I've told people and they've been, they, which was that, so there was no Jews until I think there was uh, 30-something. And then around this time, Northern Exposure came out. Do you remember that show? hmm So there was a guy named Fleischman, Jewish guy, <laughs> who moved to Alaska. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. And he had some, you know, he was, he, he was a doctor. And I love that show. And he was one of the only Jewish characters on television who in a drama, right, along with the Gotten from 30-something. Um, so I went to college in Chicago. And it was the first time that I'd, you know, in my dorm, there were a lot of people who'd never met Jews before. Mm-hmm. People from, there was, one, there was one girl from Quincy, Illinois, who I was the first Jew she ever met. <laughs> and as soon as she met me, she and you know, I got along great with her. I was like psyched that some girl was talking to me, right? She, uh, but she called me Fleischman, and that whole year <laughs> she called me Fleischman, right? Uh-huh. Because that was the only Jew she knew.
0: Was it what, what was it a Jewish actor? Who was the leader?
1: Rob Morrow.
0: Okay, yeah, I do remember that. Yeah, I vaguely remember the show. I was a little too young for it, but um, And, and
1: yeah. some people, some people when I tell that story, they're like, I'm sorry. And I'm like, I didn't, I really was, I, she was only in good spirit. You know, didn't mean anything bad, but, and I, you know, but but it, what it did tell me is culture matters. Like it mattered that she had this one Jewish character mm-hmm. or so few Jewish characters, especially particularly, and it mattered that we're such a tiny, it reminded me like, we're a tiny population and there are plenty of people in this country who had, you know, don't have exposure to us. This is,
0: yeah, this is true. Here's a side note. Do you remember the show Brooklyn Bridge that was on, I think maybe only in one season in like uh, 1991 or
1: two? I know of it, but I, I don't, I, I didn't watch it.
0: Okay, yeah, I think it, it seems to not have ever made it onto DVD or streaming or anything. So it's sort of lost in time, but that was, I mean, it was a sort of like Wonder Years, but set in Brooklyn with a Jewish family. And I can't remember if it took place before after World War II, but, you know, they lived in Brooklyn and it very much was sort of like a family drama of, you know, that probably was teaching lessons, you know, for the whole family kind of thing, but I remember really enjoying it as a kid and I, yeah, I was really sort of like eight or nine, but that, but also in that one, the love interest is a little redheaded Catholic girl, you know, who lives across the street. And um, so once again, is up, you know, male, like nine-year-old boy is sort of the main character and the mother must have been Jewish, but I don't remember what the parents were like and all, but sort of the... A plot like was a the Jewish kid with a crush on the Gentile girl. Um, there were, yeah, there was so there was a turning point that was sort of like late 80s and Seinfeld, and then a semi-forgotten Richard Lewis sitcom and Harry Sally, also. And it
1: did, Jackie yeah, chicken soup. And if you read the press from back then, it's 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 startling. If you read like the mainstream media coverage of it, it's like, oh my god, this is this crazy risk the networks are doing. <laughs> They're putting these <laughs> Jews on TV, and then they have quotes from them saying, "Well, you know, this is not going to be too Jewish. It's not going. It's the, uh, you know, it, it was a really big deal in a way that's kind of hard for us to imagine now. And, and you know, it, I guess it is a long time ago, but for me, it's 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 you know right at you know it's puberty. It's right at the heart of my childhood. And it's interesting. I, I mean, I'm grateful that now you have uh, Amy Schumer and the one from Broad City, and you know, Jenny Slate. You have more you know, examples of Jewish women in culture now, um, things have improved as yeah. worth also, you know, pointing that out.
0: Yeah. Um, so how do you think sort of contemporary and up Jewish comedians are understanding this? You mentioned a couple and one is actually a show that someone just recommended to me that I go check out and it's called Just For Us. Um, Alex Edelman is the performer i guess it's a one-man show um and you also mentioned uh hannah Einbinder, who is in hacks oh no i just remember one thing i do want to briefly mention randomly i was reading an article on the new york website and below there were some links to old pieces i don't know if it was an algorithm it or what but there's something about seinfeld I was like oh what is this i clicked on it it was an article from 1993 by james wolcott comparing and contrasting seinfeld and howard stern and making the case huh. that they represented sort of two sides of the jewish comedic id uh with cern being like much more unleashed dark and obviously like playing into racism explicitly where seinfeld was sort of like tiptoeing around those things and it's just it's interesting to think about i mean obviously howard cern is jewish but he's not known for being jewish <laughs> i know in the culture right. today maybe he was more 30 years ago but to have seinfeld and Harrod and Stern paired was an interesting thing to think about because they they seem totally dissimilar to me today. but um, but anyway, but back to, yeah, what do you what do you see among younger Jewish comedians who have, you know, their sensibilities have been formed over the past, you know, seven or eight years where there seems to have been this shift in the um understanding of anti-Semitism. How are they treating this?
1: I mean, I think that, you know traditionally, you know, Jewish comedians are like the most transgressive, they're great outsiders, they're, you know, Howard Stern, if you look back at the press, you know, if you look back at his first or his big hit, it was, you know, compared to Lenny Bruce's book, right? That's the tradition mm-hmm. that the people who liked Howard Stern, you know, put him in. And uh, not I, and Seinfeld was a, is, a you know, a completely different tradition, but, you know, a lot, there's a, really a fantastic tradition of sort of transgressive Jewish artists who are pushing the envelope and all these things, and that that still exists. They're they're all over the place. Um, but you know, what I point out in the piece is that there is this new you know, there's a new group of younger Jews who are, you know, coming up at the time with shifting politics and with conversations like the kind that we're talking about with Daryl Horn and David Badiow's book. And that guy, Alex Alman, right now, that is like a sleeper hit. That's a, that's a he's a guy a comedian's been around for a while. Mike Birbiglia produced this show. He's done this with uh, Jacqueline Novak, and now he took like a stand-up, put it in a theatrical format. It got more attention that way in terms it got reviewed. It's not a disconnected series of jokes. as a theme. It's about him going to this neo-Nazi group rally in Queens, and I would and it's and I the number of people who aren't interested in comedy who've mentioned it to me just in the last couple of weeks is evidence that this is kind of broken through from comedy. Mm-hmm. And I think that one of the things it's speaking to is that it's a, you know, it's in the tradition of Jewish comedians, but it takes anti-Semitism very seriously. It's very pessimistic. You know, he goes, talks to these, I, I don't want to spoil anything or, but if he goes and talk to people who, who who disagree with him, and he, and he doesn't come away thinking, oh, we can all get along, <laughs> uh-huh. the, uh, which, you know, is, is more of our time than uh, than anything. And that also, there's a, there's a dis- interesting discussion that relates to the Whoopi Goldberg controversy because uh, I, I'm going to paraphrase, but, you know, he basically says, um, you know, there's this conversation over whether Jews are, are a race, but I'll tell you this, you know, I've met these neo-Nazis in Queens, They think we are right. (laughs) They, they, um, you know, if Whoopi Goldberg had seen this show, she wouldn't have made that mistake. Mm -hmm. Um, and, um, so it's, I think it's very much a show of the zeitgeist. And then turns out, Hannah Einbinder is, is his girlfriend, which I, uh, (laughs) um, so the advocate. she's another, you know, and she's the daughter of Lorraine Newman and she's both at Hacksmith has been touring a, a show, which is, um, you know, I'm sure she'll have her first stand-up special soon. She's, you know, uh, and yeah, she's also, I would say, more earnestly Jewish in a kind of religious sense, not just in like a cultural sense. Mm-hmm. Um, than a lot, and, you know, there's, there's, I mean, just today I got an email from somebody who said, I couldn't believe a comedian who invited me to this monthly Jewish stand-up show. He said, I can't believe in New York there's no Jewish, regular Jewish stand-up show. We're starting one at the Stan Comedy Club, um, and it's it's only Jews, right? That really, that's another thing. It's like, no one even questioned that. Like, of course, there's a, Asian stand-ups. There's, you know, all kinds of... Did we need a Jewish stand-up? The joke would be like, every show is a Jewish stand-up, right? <laughs> but, you know, now there's there's a shift going on. And I think to some degree, you know, my, my piece is part of thinking through that. I've been influenced by those artists as well. <laughs> yeah, and, you know... There's definitely,
0: um, how to put this, identity in various ways has be seemingly become more salient over the past 10 years or so. And maybe Jews who would have considered themselves, you know, th- that their Judaism wasn't a strong part of their identity, now that other groups are talking about their identity more openly, maybe like, oh yeah, like this is this is who I am, and I should, you know, think about that more or place that more prominently you know as how i see myself so yeah so a jewish stand-up review or something is like one interesting possible manifestation of of that phenomenon and i'm not yeah i don't know if that's ultimately good or not i don't know, I have to think about it more and you can see sort of like like ghettoization of doing air quotes in various ways like you know go see the hispanic comics and go see the jewish comics instead of mixing it all together in the supposed melting pot of america or whatever so i don't know but it, it's it's an interesting development um i'm not sure if i have any other questions i think we've covered the ground fairly well but um if somehow people haven't read the piece after listening to this they should still check it out because you do t- uh, especially the, the closing anecdote you tell is very interesting and we'll just tease that there and involves a typo i guess um it, but a very momentous typo that ended up having strong ramifications in your life so people should check out the piece title was again is is it funny for the jews a great headline and where anything else should people follow you on twitter or what should if they want to find out more about
1: your, yeah follow me on twitter ads and i guess i'm starting to do instagram which i've ignored so you can get me at zeniman J or there that as well but but uh i come out around every every other week at the times
0: okay cool and you know this is the Inaugural episode of culture German as an independent enterprise. And so, you know, um, no longer on the blogheads platform. And so if you want to keep getting this content, you have to, you know, subscribe to this show individually and you can tell your friends and you can rate and review and do all those things that help other people find the content. I was taking a little break while I was rebooting the show, but I hope to get on a more or less weekly schedule with these things. That's the goal at least. And, um, you know, subscribing and telling your friends and tweeting about it and blah, blah, blah is (laughs) helps hopefully help make this a successful enterprise. So thank you, Jason, for coming on. And uh, thank you to all of the listeners out there. And we'll see you again next time.